I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, friends, and welcome to the latest episode of my podcast, Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I look at major newspaper headlines from history And then I ignore those headlines and find out what else was being reported around the country and the world on the exact same day. For today's major headline, I'm going with a month and day that we already covered in the very first episode of this podcast, except today's headline happened 47 years earlier. I'm talking about April 15th, 1865. Exactly 47 years before the Titanic sunk, and less than one week after General Lee surrendered to General Grant at the Appomattox Courthouse, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. We all know the basics of this story, right? The night before President Lincoln was at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., enjoying a play with his wife and friends, when suddenly John Wilkes Booth entered the president's box and shot him in the head. Even though he lived for nine more hours, President Lincoln never regained consciousness and he passed away just after 7 a.m. the next morning. Now friends, I'm gonna take a side road for just a minute. I really enjoy going to the theater and I would love to see the play Lincoln was watching, which is called Our American Cousin. Do theater companies ever perform it anymore or is that too morbid? If anyone knows the answer to this, email me at additionalhistory at gmail.com and let me know because now that I'm thinking about it, I'm really, really curious. Anyway, back to the real event. Lincoln is shot and killed, and eventually John Wilkes Booth is captured and killed. Lincoln's body is taken back to Springfield, Illinois for burial, and the train carrying his body is flanked by thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people all along the route. The country mourns. Those are the basics of the story, right? I mean, we all learned about this event in history class or in the movies, or by reading books or watching documentaries, but how many of us learned about the details of the events from reading about it in the newspapers in circulation that day? I would guess not very many of us, and that includes myself. So, I started my search for coverage of the event, and I was surprised at how many headlines Lincoln shared with another person. The headlines weren't just about Lincoln. In almost every case, he shared top billing with William Seward, his Secretary of State. The story of the attempted assassination of Secretary Seward usually takes a backseat to the assassination of the President himself these days. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I'd forgotten it even happened, and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people never heard about it happening in the first place. Now, I don't want to get into the conspiracy theories and speculation surrounding that night, because this podcast isn't about the major events. But in case you don't remember, or never even learned about the other assassination attempts that night, I'm going to share just a little bit with you. So, not long before Lincoln's assassination, Secretary of State William Seward was out enjoying a carriage ride when he was suddenly thrown from the carriage. He was injured pretty severely and ended up being bedridden while he recuperated. On the day of the assassination, at approximately the same time John Wilkes Booth was entering the president's box at the theater, a man named Lewis T. Powell arrived at Secretary Seward's home. 
He insisted that he was sent by the pharmacy and had some medication that he must deliver to Secretary Seward himself. In reality, Powell was part of a group that had made a pact to assassinate the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state all on the same night. Members of Secretary Seward's family were hesitant to let Powell in, but he forced his way into the secretary's room and stabbed him multiple times in the face and throat. Somehow, the secretary survived the ordeal, but a total of five people in his household were injured before Powell fled the scene. The secretary's son, Frederick Seward, was hit in the head with a pistol and knocked unconscious with a fractured skull. A lot of the newspapers printed headlines the next morning stating that Secretary Seward had died along with Lincoln, even though he actually ended up surviving the attack. Another man, George Atzerat, was supposed to kill Vice President Andrew Johnson that night, but he chickened out and got drunk instead. Johnson had been alone in his room, so he would have been an easy target if Atzerat had decided to go through with his end of the plan. Anyway, all the men I mentioned, along with a couple of other people, were executed for their parts in the conspiracy just a few months later on July 7th. Now, all of this is interesting and extremely historical, and I know I barely scratched the surface of details, but that's because this podcast isn't about the major events. If you want to know more about those, you can listen, watch, or read from thousands of sources. Instead, I'm going to tell you what else was happening around the country the day Abraham Lincoln died. Now friends, one thing to keep in mind when I'm talking about old stories is that newspapers weren't like they are now or how they were a hundred years ago or even 50 years ago. Newspapers didn't have the machines we have now and getting information out quickly wasn't an option in most towns. By the time a reporter found out about a story that happened on the other side of the country, it was already old news. The newspapers back then were often very political, a fact they didn't try to hide in any way, and it wasn't uncommon for the newspapers to have extremely racist stories printed. While trying to decide what to do my additional history stories about this week, I found many jokes and stories and political rants but I found very few articles in any paper about current events. There were advertisements and notices and announcements such as obituaries, but nothing that screamed, breaking news. For example, in one newspaper, I saw that someone paid for a notice to be printed saying that they had found a horse and buggy and to contact them if you had lost a horse and carriage. Just a couple of lines down was another notice from someone else that basically said, Hey, I lost my horse and buggy. If you found it, let me know. I'm sure the newspaper was getting paid by both parties, so why bother to help them out? I hope the two parties were able to connect. Anyway, because of the way news was reported 155 years ago, finding credible stories is kind of difficult. But I managed to find three that fascinated me. For my first story from April 15, 1865, I went to the Vermont Record out of Brattleboro, Vermont. This publication must have been prepared in advance because it was a lot bigger than most papers of the day and it didn't mention Lincoln's assassination. The paper had very little as far as current events go, but a tiny paragraph a few pages in, under the simple headline of News Paragraphs, caught my attention. Why? Because it mentioned a shipwreck. 
and I'm a sucker for shipwrecks. As an author, my very first published book was about the mysterious shipwreck, if you could even call it a shipwreck, of the Mary Celeste. The little paragraph in the Vermont record simply said, the steamer Bertrand sank in the Missouri River near Omaha, Nebraska with a valuable cargo. When I read Valuable Cargo, my mind immediately jumped to visions of jewels and gold and all kinds of treasure. So I dug a little deeper and it turns out that the valuable cargo on the Bertrand had nothing to do with gold or jewels or anything like that. But as someone who loves history, I think what was on the ship is just as cool and definitely just as important. Back in April of 1865, the steamship Bertrand was on its way to Montana Territory via the Missouri River with a load of supplies and goods when it hit a huge log jutting out of the river and sunk in just a matter of minutes. Somehow, everyone on board managed to get off in time and everyone survived. Keep in mind that back then, Montana was still 25 years away from becoming a state, but that didn't stop people from going there in search of fortune. While the Civil War was raging in the East, others were seeking their fortune in the West. I'm going to take a slight detour here to tell you about something else that will eventually tie into the story. In 1863, gold was discovered near a town that came to be known as Virginia City, Montana. In a very short time, Virginia City went from having a population of, well, zero, to at least 10,000 residents. Virginia City became such a popular town that it even served as the territorial capital of Montana for 10 years. When the gold started to dwindle, people began to move away until it eventually became a ghost town. I've actually visited Virginia City a few times, including a trip there just this summer, and it's a lot of fun. Old buildings have been restored in Old West themes, and they have live historical reenactments, and you can even ride the Alder Gulch Railroad from Virginia City to Nevada City, another ghost town just a stone's throw away. I highly recommend doing the train ride, because that's where you could hear all the fascinating stories of the Old West and vigilantes and gunslingers and restoration efforts. Now, you're probably wondering what Virginia City has to do with our story. Well, that's where the goods and supplies on the Bertrand were headed when the steamship sunk. The miners needed picks and axes and tools, and the residents needed clothing and food and household supplies. All of that stuff went down with the ship. Now friends, let's fast forward a hundred years to 1968. Two treasure hunters by the names of Sam Corbino and Jesse Purcell decide they're going to find the wreck of the Bertrand. Locals had always known about the wreck, and they knew the general location, but it had pretty much been ignored for a very long time. Sam and Jesse managed to locate the Bertrand and were able to get it some of its cargo, but there was one problem for them. You see, the Bertrand was on federal property. That meant that any articles they pulled out of the water belonged to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. For treasure seekers, I'm sure that was a tough thing, but they continued anyway, and soon a huge excavation project was underway. They managed to pull up half a million artifacts. At least half of those artifacts are stored and available to view at the DeSoto Wildlife Refuge in Iowa. It is the biggest Civil War era collection in the country, and it's a perfect example of what was needed for life during that era in the Montana Territory. Some of the artifacts were so well-preserved that you'd never known they'd been under the water for more than a century, 
and that includes clothing, fabric, and boots. Not to mention the whiskey and food. One of my favorite parts of this story is that in 1974, the National Food Processors Association decided to test some of the canned goods that had been brought up from the ship. They tested brandied peaches and oysters, plum tomatoes, honey, and mixed vegetables. Want to know what they discovered? Although the food no longer looked appetizing and no longer held any nutritional value, it didn't contain any harmful substances or microbial growth. They said it was completely safe to eat. Um, I'm going to pass on that, thanks. In a twist to this story, back in 2011, the Bertrand Collection was almost lost to the water for a second time when floodwaters threatened the museum. Many, many, many volunteers jumped into action and boxed up the entire collection. Yes, that means hundreds of thousands of pieces. The collection stayed in storage for quite some time, but they're now back at home at the DeSoto Wildlife Refuge and are no worse for the wear. And friends, I'm adding yet another museum to my long list of places I really want to visit. For my second story of the day, I'm sticking with another news paragraph from the Vermont Record of April 15, 1865. This is one of those instances where I'm glad I researched a little farther because the story is so much more than the tiny paragraph makes it seem. First, I'm going to read you the whole paragraph from the newspaper so you'll understand why it didn't seem all that significant to start with. It says, Mrs. Oviedo, or Miss Bartlett, of Diamond Wedding fame, is lying ill with smallpox at her residence near Havana. When the last steamer left March 29th, she was in an extremely critical condition. End quote. Now friends, it wasn't the fact that some poor lady was dying of smallpox that caught my attention, although that is sad. It was the fact that the words diamond wedding were in quotation marks. I didn't know if it referred to a play or a book or an actual wedding. Curiosity got the better of me and I'm really glad it did. We're going to back up a few years to an article on the front page of the New York Herald on October 14, 1859. This article is headlined, The Diamond Wedding, and it describes the wedding of Frances Amelia Bartlett to Don Esteban Santa Cruz de Oviedo the day before. Apparently, Miss Bartlett's new husband came from one of the wealthiest families in Cuba, and he had a massive plantation down there. When the couple was courting, he gave Amelia gift after gift after gift. The article estimated he spent so much on her gifts that it would be the equivalent of well over a million dollars in today's money. That's a lot for back then. The wedding was such a big event that everyone in New York was talking about the preparations and the arrangements for months before the actual day. Think about how much coverage royal weddings get, and that would be similar to the coverage this wedding got in New York City. The couple was married in St. Patrick's Cathedral by the Archbishop, and the streets around the church were packed with people and carriages. Everyone wanted to get a glimpse of the wedding party. If you've ever been outside St. Patrick's Cathedral to look at the city lights at Christmas time, I imagine it was similar. Just kidding, but not really. Those crowds are crazy. 
Anyway, anybody who wanted to be inside the building for the actual wedding had to have a special invitation card and policemen were stationed at the doors to make sure only invited guests made it in. A lot of people tried to persuade the cops, but they weren't successful. The bride wore a fancy wedding dress of lace and silk, and she wore all kinds of diamonds and pearls for jewelry. The article describing the wedding takes up almost the entire front page, and no details whatsoever are left out. Now, on the surface, this story might seem like a fairy tale romance, but there's more to it. First of all, Miss Bartlett was very young when she got married. She was still a teenager. Second, Senor de Oviedo was much, much older. One source said he was 55 at the time of the wedding. Also, remember how I said he had a huge plantation down in Cuba? Well, that plantation was run by slaves. One report estimated his slaves numbered in the thousands. According to a book by Karen Morrison, he was very cruel to the slaves and was accused of all kinds of inhumane behavior toward them. It's rumored that before he married Amelia, he fathered at least 26 children with his slaves, even though he didn't claim any of them on their birth certificates. Basically, just because he had a ton of money did not mean he was a good guy. He was a scumbag. Now, remember how I read you the paragraph from the Vermont record at the beginning of the story and mentioned that the words diamond wedding fame were in quotation marks? Well, that's because a few days after the big wedding, a man by the name of Edmund Stedman published a poem in the New York Daily Tribune called, wait for it, The Diamond Wedding. The poem was satirical and mocked the wedding and the attention it got and the people involved with it, especially the bride. The poem implied that Amelia only married D. Oviedo for his money. The bride's father, Washington Bartlett, saw the poem in the newspaper and he was livid. He immediately sent Edmund Stedman the poem's author, a note saying that it was quite gross libel against several members of my family and therefore offensive in the highest degree. Mr. Bartlett demanded that Mr. Stedman make restitution immediately, and he sent a statement that he wanted Mr. Stedman to sign, or else. The statement Mr. Stedman was expected to sign basically said that the poem couldn't be republished and that he didn't personally know anyone in the wedding party and therefore couldn't accurately write about them, and he regretted his actions. Mr. Sedman said there was no way he was signing the letter. So, the two men sent more letters back and forth, and eventually, Mr. Bartlett challenged Mr. Stedman to a duel, if he wouldn't sign the apology. Now friends, Part of me hoped that I'd keep reading and find out the men had gone through with the duel because that would make this story even better, but it turns out Mr. Bartlett backed out because he thought Mr. Stedman was beneath his station. That's a whole other thing I don't want to get into. Anyway, the results of their argument was that the poem ended up being reprinted in other papers and all of the nasty letters they'd written to each other were also printed in the New York Daily Herald and talked about in many other publications. By throwing a tantrum, Mr. Bartlett had made things much worse. So that brings us back to the article of April 15, 1865, that says poor Amelia is suffering with smallpox in Havana. In case you're wondering, she survived the disease and lived with her husband in Cuba for five more years until he passed away. She married another man in 1882, but that event was much, much smaller than the infamous Diamond Wedding.
My last story for today comes from the Reading Daily Times out of Reading, Pennsylvania, and it tells about a recent court trial in their town. According to the article, a woman named Elizabeth Seidel had accused Cyrus Bagentros of assault and battery. I tried to find more information about the pair before or after the trial, but that was a struggle. I did manage to find a man with the same name living in the Reading, Pennsylvania area at the time, but I didn't have any way to prove that it was the same guy. With a name like Cyrus Bagentros, I'm just going to assume it is. That means our alleged perpetrator was around 25 years old at the time of the incident. I have no idea how old Elizabeth was. Anyway, Elizabeth told the court that Cyrus and a friend showed up at her house one afternoon and asked if she had any apples for sale. Elizabeth told them she did and took the men down into her cellar to look at the apples. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't make it a habit of going to random strangers' homes and asking if they have apples for sale. It makes me wonder if Cyrus knew Elizabeth before that day, or if maybe she'd advertised that she had apples for sale. Either way, Elizabeth's husband was home at the time, and he went down into the cellar with the group. Cyrus and his friend looked at the fruit, and, for whatever reason, Cyrus decided he didn't want the apples, and everyone traipsed back up the stairs. Elizabeth's husband excused himself to go back to work somewhere else in the house. But instead of showing the men to the door, Elizabeth invited them into her parlor to look at her new piano. Again, it seems as if they knew each other before this incident, because even though I love my own piano, I would never invite a stranger into my living room to look at it. That's weird. At this point in Elizabeth's testimony at the trial, she said that the men asked her to play the piano for them, but she didn't want to. Instead, she asked Cyrus to play, and he agreed. The article doesn't tell us how long Cyrus played for, or even if he was any good at it. What it does tell us is that Elizabeth was standing in the doorway when Cyrus got up from the piano and approached her. In a quote directly from the Reading Daily Times article, she claims he took hold of her in an unwarranted manner and with apparently criminal intent. End quote. That is all the detail we get about the incident. I don't know if it was physical battery or something sexual or what. Your guess is as good as mine. Anyway, Elizabeth threatened to call for her husband and Cyrus and his friend left without further incident. That's the version of events Elizabeth Seidel gave, but it wasn't quite the whole story. Are you ready for a plot twist? Remember how Cyrus had a friend with him during the visit to Elizabeth's house? Well, during the trial, the friend took the stand and he told a slightly different, okay, a majorly different version of events, and it became a he said, she said trial. The friend insisted he'd been in the room the entire time and that nothing bad or inappropriate was done by Cyrus in any way. He claimed Elizabeth had made the entire story up in order to extort money from Cyrus. Then came the surprise witness. Okay, truthfully, I don't know if it was really a surprise in that moment, but I like the sound of it, so I'm going with it. The defense produced a lady by the name of Amelia Schaefer. Amelia was none other than Elizabeth Seidel's maid. And, according to Amelia, Elizabeth had offered to split any money she got from Cyrus if Amelia would back up her fabricated story. Needless to say, Cyrus Bagentros was found not guilty, and both parties were ordered to pay their own legal costs. <laughs> 
For today's fun advertisement, I took an ad out of the Evening Star in Washington, D.C. This ad is for coal oil lamps. The ad challenges consumers to come and see it for themselves and insists that the lamp will not break with heat. Want to know how much this company predicts it will cost you to heat the lamp for 12 hours? Just one cent. One itty-bitty penny will light a room for an entire day. If that advertisement doesn't interest you, I'm throwing in a bonus one this week. On the front page, right next to the announcement that President Lincoln has been assassinated, is an ad for Plantation Bitters, also known as the Elixir of Love. According to the ad, proper use of the Plantation Bitters will, quote, inspire the soul of both sexes with pure and high-toned sentiments of affection and a capacity for rare and exquisite enjoyment in each other's society. Huh. Friends, thanks for joining me today. I hope you had as much fun as I did as we jumped back in time to events that happened more than 150 years ago. You can find a list of all my sources as well as links to pictures and other articles related to the stories in the Additional History Facebook group. And as always, join me next week for another unique episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. (laughs) 